You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Jericho Brown, Pulitzer Prize-winning poet and editor of the anthology, How We Do It, Black Writers on Craft, Practice, and Skill. This podcast is supported by the Jan Mischalski Foundation. This is a book for younger and newer Black writers in undergraduate and graduate workshops and in absolutely no workshop at all. We hope teachers find these words useful for their students, and we hope students who have yet to find their teachers learn from these 32 pieces born out of absolute generosity and hope for the future of Black writing. And I put this craft book together to create an opportunity for that advice, for those role models, for that access. And I think that what I'm grateful for about this book is that it is the book that I would have wanted back when I was a 19-year-old kid telling people I wish I was a writer. So I think that's the real crux (laughs) of the book. I tried to make something that I would have needed. And because that's what I tried to make, I'm hoping readers read something that they need. You know, that's the joy of books that you come across something that you needed that you didn't even know you needed, you know? Yeah. You know, it'll be better for me if I could read you just the beginning of the first essay in the book, actually, by Daniel Black. It's called Rhythm in Writing. I've always loved the rhythm of Black vernacular. It's in the preacher's hoop. Black women's talk at kitchen tables. Black men's guttural laughter in barbershops. The sway and clapping of the Black church choir. We are a people who move and have our being in metered time. There's no secret. Writers and scholars have documented this phenomenon since the 1960s. What is elusive is how to capture this pace, this cadence on paper. It's not simply an issue of writing in ebonics. Rather, it's the ability to seize the reader's consciousness and move it in musical time. That, my friend, is a literary craft a stylistic device that is hell to master. But it's not impossible. Some Black writers are known for it. Morrison comes to mind, as do John Edgar Wideman and Sonia Sanchez. Indeed, the 1960s Black arts writers germinated in a time and space where the aesthetic emphasis centered around Black pathos. In other words, these writers meant to translate the beauty of Black idiomatic expression into literary artistic production, and this is the creative achievement contemporary Black writers inherit. However, mimicking it is another story. It seems the first secret is in the consciousness of word choice. Check out this sentence. After sunset, Willie Joe and Bessie went to the bedroom and made love. This sentence is okay, but it doesn't carry the rhythm of Black experience. It doesn't show or celebrate the way in which Black folks had to make space for love when the entirety of their existence was subsumed in survival. But this sentence does. After the sun went down, Willie Joe and Bessie made their way to the bedroom and did what they could do. The difference here is several things. First, Sunset is what the sun does every day. There is nothing particular about it. The sun going down, however, is Black people's hope for a moment of rest. It's the time of day when they get to breathe for a minute. Then exchanging went to the bedroom for made their way makes all the difference in terms of the rhythm of movement. Made their way implies struggle and difficulty, but it also implies desire and intentionality. It means they wouldn't be denied. And finally, did what they could do, does all the work to demonstrate 
the beauty of Black intimacy within the limitations of bondage and restraint. Writers are often taught, and rightly so, the craft of language economy, the use of as few words as possible to convey a point. And generally, this makes for a smoother style and less laborious text. However, sometimes, in order to establish a Black rhythmic pulse in written discourse, one needs more words, more instruments with which to play the symphonic complexity of Black life. There's something in all three of those essays from the past that says, in order to make what you make, you have to use what you have. You have to submerge yourself, immerse yourself in what you know, in your own vernacular, in your own tone, in your own belief, in your own way of doing things and telling stories. And that's how the writing can get done. And there's something about that moment that I just read from Daniel Black that seems to say, make use of your own vernacular. Even if it does not necessarily follow what you're taught in your MFA classroom, how do you create a specificity of voice, a specificity of character? And sometimes that has to do with using what you know. This is a book I wish existed 20 years ago. I would have led an easier life if it had. How We Do It is divided into eight sections with a range of essays in each. Who your people, what you got, where you act, how you live in, what it looked like, who you with, how to read, and going back. The titles here are intended to communicate the fact that these sections could not be narrowed down to the kind of jargon with which writers are accustomed. We weren't going to name the sections voice, tone, setting, character, or good advice, because every essay here gets at more than any single topic. Who Your People, for instance, includes meditations on characterizations in speech. It has bare bones and real times directives from Crystal Wilkinson like, when you get to talk about your characters as if they are members of your family, then you've got it right. And an exhaustive list of questions any writer may want to answer when envisioning the full human life of someone imagined. What you got is a section on the uses of personal and communal experiences in writing, no matter how traumatic or dire those experiences may be. I've never been interested in getting rid of the fact of being a Black writer. I've never been insulted by being called a Black writer. And I've never been insulted by being included in an anthology of Black writing. I think there's a fear about that because people will say, well, if you do, that becomes all you are. And my frustration with that statement is twofold. One, what's wrong with being Black? <laughs> That's all you are, as if Black is not expansive, as if Black is not all-encompassing, as if George Washington Carver was not Black. Do you know, you know all you are? Do you know what I'm saying? And so this idea of all you are that can come, even from the mouth of an aspiring Black writer, really is a sentiment that we inherit from whiteness. After the Pulitzer Prize, I was still Black. And I love that. I'm so glad I'm Black. So I don't mind that at all. Like, why wouldn't I want you to know? Why would it be a secret? It's not a secret. I mean, when you read my writing and it's clear that you're reading the work of a Black writer, I don't feel somehow betrayed by that clarity. 
Rita Dove has an essay here called Seven Brides for Seven Mothers. And what I love about it is she says it's the list she makes for herself as guiding principles for her own writing. And then over the years, as that changes, she's willing to tweak this list. So her aesthetics are changing. Her beliefs about writing are changing. And I love that we get to see what it's like to be a writer over the long haul. You know, we don't get to retire from this job. Number one, no excuses. Two, notebooks, not journals. Three, every roadblock is an opportunity to explore the neighborhood. Four, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing, but if swing is all it's got, you might as well join a band and take it on the road. Five, while you're writing, never think of your audience. They will find you. Six, each word is a living, breathing thing. And seven, silence is the shadow of the word. For instance, in the notes app of my iPhone, I keep a running list of lines. But then when, you know, Sunday comes, I dump them in a word file. And I, as I start moving things around unconsciously, I end up saying things about myself. This is really how the duplexes were made. I didn't expect there to be a duplex about my father. I didn't expect there to be a duplex about rape. But because I had written the line, the opposite of rape is understanding. I had written that line and it just sort of sat there. So then as I'm writing these other lines coming out, then yes, I end up admitting to the fact in the poem that I myself have been raped. But it was not my intention. <laughs> I did not set out to do it. Once the admission is made in the poem, though, it becomes easier to work with because I didn't set out to do it. It feels more like a responsibility for the poem more than it is for me. Also, part of the joy of what we do, you know, since I'm speaking for every writer, is discovery. Part of the joy of what we do is surprise. Part of the joy of what we do is that you sit down, you write a few words, and suddenly you see something, you see yourself say something you didn't expect to say. And so you sort of follow that thread and then you say another thing you didn't expect to say. One of the things I say to them is that our job as writers is to write what will become cliche. Not to write cliches, but to be original enough that we make something that people are still saying, that we say the thing that characterizes thought on a subject for hundreds of years to come. And if that's what you're doing, that's pretty powerful. You're in a position of power. I have to understand what I'm doing when I'm doing it. And I think it feels like it to me. What I'm doing when I'm writing a poem is making a world. And if I can stick to that, then I have to believe that once a poem is out in the world, another world has been made. Another way of living, another way of thinking, another way of seeing things. One single poem is a way of seeing things. If I believe that, I mean, I'm saying stuff like that all the time, but if I believe that and I'm a person who made the damn poem, I'm a person of power. So you're afraid to change because you don't want people to call you strange. So I sort of get that, but I grew up in a very different situation. I'm actually always surprised that I'm even in communication with my parents at all. I didn't think anybody in my family would want to have anything to do with me because that was the message I got from the world when I was a kid, that people do not want to have anything to do with queer people other than queer people. 
that was what I understood, that queer people themselves didn't even want to have anything to do with one another. And so I was putting myself in training, you know, from the age when I figured out that I was in the guys, which was very young when I was in elementary school. I was in training for the day I leave my parents' house, they find out I'm gay and never speak to me again. Now, that's not how things went. But if you have that idea, if you already have the idea that everyone in your life is going to reject you, then that makes it easier to write. You <laughs> Because you don't think you have anything to lose. And part of our fear about writing that which is intimate or personal or traumatic has to do with the fact that we are afraid that, yeah, I'll have the good piece of writing, but I lose this really wonderful relationship in my real life. And I don't want to lose my relationships. Moving forward in time, I think it's different for me now, and I think it's easier for me to write into a kind of risk because I have trained myself to a point where I don't think about that risk as I am writing. I put myself in a position where I only have to think about that risk once I am at a point in a draft. And by that time, the poem is so good, I don't care about that relationship. But in the beginning, as I was saying to Mia earlier, my goal is lies. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, that sounds good. Oh, this is interesting. Oh, I might be able to use this piece. You take things down to the word, to the fragment, to the lie, in some cases to the sentence, to the paragraph and you start putting things together, then you can begin to put them together because they go together, not because they're about you in any particular way. And so one of the wonderful things that happens in the book is these writers aren't just writers, they're readers. So when they're talking about the work they love in their essays, they didn't know they were going to be in a book with some of these other people, but they end up discussing the work of other people who are in the book. And because they're doing that, that, the book ends up creating this web, which I think lets readers know just how intricate the world of influence really is for a writer and how you get different things from different people along the way. I would like for young people to understand uh, just how powerful they are, just how much what they do matters, that they really can make changes that change themselves and change their communities, change readership, change what a readership can be, change people's idea about what a writer might look like, for instance, that we do have agency, that we do have power, that we can make differences. And I also would like for them to know that in order to do that, you have to make it a habit of trying. Nothing beats a failure but a try. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.